0: and their essential love of justice. Hi, welcome to the Cutsu Vine for November 3rd, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me, as always, welcome Catherine Smith.
2: Greetings from Atlanta. 365 days before the election.
0: Yeah, and yeah. uh, welcome Tim Shiflet. Good evening, sir. All right, good to have y'all both on, and here in about 20 minutes, uh, coming back on the show for just a good handful of times from election projection, Scott Elliott has been working on his maps, and is going to come on with just a year to go, Catherine, like you said, interesting to have him on at that date, to kind of give his thoughts on where he sees the presidential race, the U.S. Senate, and the um, House races, He's, he's projecting at all three levels. Uh, But until then, we're going to talk about the presidential race on the Democratic side and the fluidity of the race. Um, I think we mentioned briefly last week uh, Tim Ryan dropped out, and he will run for his House seat again in Ohio. At the very end of the week, Beto O'Rourke dropped out. And then uh, Kamala Harris, she's putting kind of all her eggs in the early states into the Iowa basket— and pulling, shutting down Operations New Hampshire. Other campaigns are, are having other news come out, so we can kind of st- start with all of that. Um, Catherine, we may have mentioned Ryan, but better work's definitely new. Uh, what do you think on uh, the, the field narrowing at this point?
2: Well, I'm glad. You know, I think it's important to see how these people dropping out shift the um, popularity of the top candidates. And, you know, I I think – I mean, I know it must be really hard for these candidates, having worked so hard to um, prevail, to drop out. But I think it's good for the party, good for the country to narrow this field so that we can, you know, zero in on the uh, policies and values and, and things that are important to the American people and find a candidate that can beat Donald Trump. Yeah, uh, Tim.
0: A few—it's uh, been a few months ago now. We had a string of about three guests on, and one of the questions, were like, you know, who's been underwhelming in the presidential race? And like every single one of them said, Beto O'Rourke. Um, he had that moment in which he really um, seized on the, the gun issue and, and went to the Arkansas, um, you know, gun show, and actually got some people there to say, look, I, I don't want to own an AR-15.
3: Uh, it looked like he might have had
0: some spark to his campaign but but it just didn't catch long term. Uh your thoughts? No,
3: no, no it didn't. Uh I, 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 I was uh, I was really surprised that whatever lightning he had in a bottle down in Texas, he 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 was never able to turn loose. Uh uh nationally it was like something was missing somebody should have told him something uh he he, he just he he didn't come across as an exciting candidate uh he just uh he st- he started up and went straight down from day one it it just it just never happened for him uh uh and and I would have thought in looking at this field um couple of months, three, four months ago, that he would not have been out now. And uh, here we are talking about it. But that's uh, the fickleness of national politics as opposed to state politics. We look back now, and I I suppose what we see in Texas is the fact that uh, Beto O'Rourke ran in the right year in a year with angry democratic voters who were trying to see, uh, send everyone, uh, that was wearing an elephant lapel, uh, a message, including the folks down in Texas. And, uh, he, he, uh, he ran a fine race, but it, it just never did happen for him, uh, at the national level, and it's really too bad. And he's not that old, and perhaps he can come back. I don't know, but this uh, this has to be a devastating blow for a for a guy that probably thought he 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 might fare a lot better. So.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting because you know they're saying, does some people want somebody else in the race? And a lot of times, some people will like look at the frontrunners and say, you know, we need somebody young and dynamic. Uh, Well, better O'Rourke if he was two things. He was young and dynamic, Um, at least in political terms he was young. Um, And and so – but it never seemed to catch, and I think part of it was is different people want different things. I think there's part of the electorate that wants the safest candidate to beat Donald Trump, and he's just not safe. You know, I'm using this as far as like the way he runs campaign is pretty brash. You know, it's, it's not traditional. Uh, some people, I think, want to make history, and they want to elect the first woman president. Can't do that. Uh, some people maybe say, hey, we, you know, the country's diversifying. We need a person of color. Can't do that. Uh, some people may look at Pete Buttigieg and say, let's make history there. Can't do that. And so by the time all these different needs are met, the, the little piece of the pie for what's left, there just wasn't a lot left for him. Um, And so I think he ran into a little bit of that. Um, Catherine, any thoughts there?
2: Yeah, you know, I feel the same way as Tim. Like, I I think he's – I feel like he, like, lost his mojo or something. Like, whether it was just the um, pressure of running nationally or uh, uh, just the the rest of the field maybe feeling – uh, less confident uh, among the people that were he was running with, who were all who m- many of them m- have much more experience and um, age uh, in their favor. So I just, I, I, but I, I I was surprised that I was never a big fan of his. I I always felt like there was a lot of bluster, but I did think that he would um, last longer certainly than some of these other candidates that are still in the race. So but again I'm sure that that it's like Tim said devastating to him. But hopefully he's young enough that he'll be able to, you know, um come back and do something for the country in some way. Yeah. David, Go ahead, Tim.
3: I was just gonna say i you know, I've watched every minute of every one of those debates. And at this point in this race, I think a lot of the political people is who's watching these debates uh, from the national down to the local level, people that get out and actually do things in politics, get involved, uh, nail up signs, give money, run headquarters, serve on state committees, um, la-di-da-di-da. And Beto O'Rourke did not come across very well in those debates. He did not perform well in those debates. Um, And I have to think that the people who watched the debates are the people that he needed to impress politically to stay in the race, the people that would help him uh, run a good campaign, the people that would... At the ground level in in Iowa and New Hampshire put together organizations for him, raise money for him uh and, and and that just never materialized for him and when when his poll numbers bottomed out and he and he was at the point that he couldn't even make. The next debate probably in Atlanta, that that just had to be the end of the of the day for him. It might be, as you said, that uh, people are looking safe this year to beat Donald Trump next year. I don't know. And maybe they don't feel he's that. But I was just totally, totally underwhelmed when I watched him. If I had known nothing about him, I would have paid no attention to him. What do you
0: think? Yeah, I, I think it's kind of like, you know, we fought you and I fall sports. Imagine somebody, you know, uh, goes in the top two or three picks of the NFL draft, has a great combine, great film, great buzz, everybody's excited, and the first game happens, and the ball snapped, and whatever position they play, they just suck eggs at it. Um, yeah. It's it's kind of what happened there. It was kind of like Texas yeah. was his college career, man. He was... He was the big new thing, and and then the he got to the NFL, and it, it just wasn't there. Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's keep moving on, and you know it's real funny. A few months ago, probably in the spring, um, I, I remember seeing some like power rankings that uh, Harry Enton and, and Chris Zazilla did, um, and they had the the two hottest candidates. I mean, this is before Joe Biden was even in. Uh, different things. It was. Kamala Harris and Better O'Rourke, one and two, and it was like you know one of these two is going to be on the ticket. Now there's still a chance. I guess I guess there's a chance either one could be on the ticket. Better O'Rourke is a, a VP, I, I wouldn't put a lot of money on predicted on that. Uh, but Kamala Harris, I guess, still has more of a chance one to be president since she's in the race and two to be a VP. Um, but she's still not performing to that number one level. I mean, she's fourth or fifth in most polls. Pretty easily. Um, and she's had to kind of say, I've got a big win in Iowa. I can't compete in Iowa and New Hampshire. I'm out in New Hampshire. Uh, Catherine, how shocking is this?
2: You know, this didn't shock me that much. I think she's just putting all her eggs in Iowa and hoping that she prevails and then she can, you know, if, or maybe not win, but, 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 Play well in Iowa, and then she'll be able to raise more money and and set shop back up in New Hampshire. I don't think this is that unusual of uh, um, strategy. Um, so I I, I I was a little bit surprised because I thought she was pretty well funded, but apparently I was wrong. I haven't been looking at those numbers that often, so I don't know. But um, somewhat surprised, but but I think it's probably a wise move.
0: Yeah, um, I, I, Catherine, I, th- I have heard, you know, I think I was listening to Chris Higgins' pro- podcast. She, didn't, she is having trouble with funding, and she comes from California. And if we know one place you can raise Democratic money is California. So it's kind of vexing to people. Uh, Tim, your thoughts? Uh,
3: it, it almost looks like with this move with New Hampshire that she's running out of money. And, and and it just looks like an act of desperation i have never seen in all the years that i've watched politics a candidate say okay this is where i'm drawing a line in the sand i have got to win this state right here or else i've never seen any result to that other than the r l I, I've just never seen this particular thing be successful. Uh, but still, I think she's being forced into it uh, by the lack of resources. If there's another explanation, I would like to know what it is, because I don't see where saying, you know, I'm not going to pay any attention to New Hampshire. uh I, I I'm i not I'm I'm not seeing where that's a, a good thing to do. So I, I just think it's an act of desperation at this point. Now what is she saying about Iowa, by the way, David, that that oh I've got to finish in the top three or I've got to win or or what?
0: It's been over a month ago but apparently she was overheard saying I'm gonna bleep and move there. Um, you know, she kinda already pushed the chips into the Iowa table. Pretty heavily, um, but just not to have a president in New Hampshire, that's pretty striking, I will say. Between Elizabeth Warren being next door, Bernie Sanders being next door, um, and New Hampshire being uh, fairly white, although I think Kamala Harris really could, you know, I, I think a lot of white voters would. To feel totally comfortable with her, um, so I don't. I think she should make a play uh, for every voter. Uh, like, but, I mean, I guess uh, it makes a little more sense to go to Iowa since Amy Klobuchar is the only person next door, and I don't think like the Minneapolis media market bleeds over like the Boston media market does to those uh, to uh, New Hampshire.
3: Speaking of white, I think Iowa is pretty much that too. It is. It is. But but, I mean, Barack Obama uh,
0: broke the mold there. And so, yeah, but that's, uh, you know, and really she's not connecting in South Carolina like Joe Biden is. Um, And and so that's all, you know, part of this calculus. Um, I think one thing that does hurt her, and I actually heard a little bit on Chris Higgins' podcast again, I've been catching up uh, this week. and he had some um, audio from the G, uh, LB, LGBT uh, forum from a few weeks ago, um, and it, she actually was asked a question about like African-American transgendered um, people uh, being murdered at a higher rate. And she gave an answer about some things they did, but she was, seemed to be afraid to just say, yeah, these four commit murder. I prosecute murders. It's kind of like at times she was afraid to lead with her bio, and, um, you know, her bio is strong for this, uh, you know, some of these things. I mean, there are crimes that get committed that you prosecute, and 99% of the people agree it should be prosecuted. And so she shouldn't be afraid to uh, talk about that, I don't think. I believe we have our guest on the line, so I'm going to go ahead and at this time Welcome back to the Kudzu Vine from Election Projection, Mr. Scott Elliott. Welcome, Scott.
1: Oh, thank you. It's so good to be back with you all again.
0: Yeah, you're, you're fooling me up. I won't give out your area code, but I know that area code, and that area code's on the other side of the country from Oregon. So I had to um, <laughs> do a double take. And I don't know what Oregon's area code, but I knew where this one was. And so yep, I was like, oh, uh... whoa.
1: It, it's been three years since we've been in Oregon, and I still haven't changed my number yet. So I get, I get that, that sort of confused look a lot whenever I give my phone number out.
0: Oh, uh, well, I know what you mean. I, my son's football coach here in Georgia, that he had uh, had a Texas number. So, you know, you see that kind of thing all the time now, and that's just going to be the way of the world. Well, let's quit talking cell phone numbers, and let's talk about electoral maps. Uh, Numbers, if you will. And I was looking at your maps and I noticed you don't have a ton of volatility on the House of Representatives. You had just two Senate seats switching, and we won't talk specifically about those necessarily. But then on the electoral map, you had at least four states switching from the – Republican column to the Democratic column, and you had uh, Maine, too, I believe, switching from the Democratic column to the Republican column. Basically more volatility at the presidential level than almost the other two branches or the uh, the two legislative houses combined. Uh, why do you see that difference there?
1: Well, okay, so this is very early. That's the first thing I'll say. It's, it's, it, we're over a year out and or just about a year out. And in the house, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. November 3rd. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in the house, we just haven't got a lot of, um, a lot of competitive races identified yet. I mean, there's a, there's a set of them, but I I feel like obviously as we get closer, then a the, lot more races will become competitive and, and we'll begin to see the other thing is we haven't seen any kind of wave developing yet. It's way too early for that. So I think that, more than anything probably dictates the, the status quo um picture that we're seeing in the in the House and the Senate. As far as the presidential election goes, uh since I don't have any real uh polling numbers between Trump and whoever the nominee would be, and I don't uh have any state polls, so I don't have national or state polls. I'm I'm using the, the job approval which right now is not real good for Trump. And so, therefore, you're seeing a lot of those close races from 2016 painted blue um, this early on instead of red. Uh, main CD2 actually is, was uh, Trump did win that in 2016, so that sort of stayed in his column uh, early on.
0: I, I just uh, d- d- overlooked that, if you will. Well, let's talk about you know Donald Trump and his and not being a traditional personality for the presidency. I mean, whether somebody liked him or disliked him, he's not uh, George H.W. Bush. He's not Barack Obama. He's not kind of calmer and more traditional. He's pretty brash, um, definitely paints outside the lines. Um, How hard does that make your projections?
1: Well, I think that uh, you've touched on something that that is going to be a – as it was in 2016, a very common thread in 2020, and that is the unconventional, unconventionality—if that's a word—of of Donald Trump. It, it makes it very, very difficult, especially for instance in the in the area of these job approval polls, um, because they are so low. But yet at the same time, I don't know if they really reflect how people think about the job he's doing versus the the brashness that you that you allude to, right? So it's going to be very tough to sort of incorporate. That metric into the projections because the historical track record for an incumbent president trying to win reelection is that there's a very close correlation between job approval and popular vote uh, numbers for an, a sitting president. And if that, you know, if that history plays out, then Trump's in big trouble. I just don't know that it will play out because of that rashness that you that you mentioned.
0: Yes. Well, I've got a good many more questions that I could ask, but I want to make sure Catherine and Tim get a turn, so I'm going to pass it to Catherine first. I'll send it to Tim, and maybe there will be some time for me to have a few more. Uh, Catherine? Catherine, are you there with us?
2: Sorry, I had myself on mute. <laughs> um, hey, thanks for being on tonight. It's great to hear from you. Um
1: it was good talking here to you we you again Catherine.
2: one year out from the election, uh by by the date. And um I wanted to ask you about uh Georgia seventh district congressional. Um we have a lot of candidates running. <laughs> right. <laughs> because it's an open seat, I'm sure. Uh but you have it um you have it favored to the Democrats just by a little bit, but just wondered what your um thoughts were on that race. Well,
1: I, I did some research because I know you guys are, are based out of Atlanta, and uh, it's interesting the the historical record we have there over the last several elections. Up before, tw- uh, I think 2016 was was the last one that sort of fell in this in this vein where the Republican incumbent was able to get 60 plus percent of the vote for many election cycles up to that point, and then that sort of just tightened you know significantly in 2018 where the 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 Republican barely held on so i think it's uh, attributable to the changing demographics around the Atlanta area i think that this may be the 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 cycle that the democrats overtake the republicans in that district and and win that seat um on the other hand georgia cd 6 which is close by i think um, is is one that the Republicans are looking at targeting pretty intensely, and that's going to be a more, uh, likely a a, um, a what do you call rematch rematch uh, there of that race from 2016, uh, I believe. Let me let me just check here to make sure. 2018. Yeah, it was 2018. 2018, right, right. And so I, I think that you're going to have a really good bellwether there in Georgia for sort of. Uh, Getting the pulse of the election on election night between those two races if if the Democrats can win both, then I think it's going to be a good night for the Democrats. On the other hand, if the Republicans win both, then it looks like a good night for the Republicans, so that may be a microcosm of the of the House races nationwide at large
2: well that would be that's always fun to watch and have everybody else watching too <laughs> <laughs> yes. But there are a slew of candidates, it'll be interesting to see what shakes out in the primary. Um, you know, we have the, the person who almost beat Woodall, the woman, uh, Carolyn Bordeaux, who almost Bordeaux, beat right. Woodall. Mm-hmm. Then, then she's got, you know, what, six, five or six uh, candidates running with her, and then there must be eight Republicans running. So it's going to be, I'm sure I'm, my, even though I don't live in the district, I'm sure my mailbox will get filled up with stuff because they always get the districts
1: wrong around here. Well, <laughs> you're going to see a lot of commercials on the TV, even more so. Oh yeah, than a lot of commercials.
2: <laughs> By the from the well-funded people because the Atlanta market is uh, is not always as uh, affordable as we'd like it to be. Right, right. Well, I'm going to pass it on to Tim if we get back around. I may have another question for you. Thanks a lot. All
1: righty.
3: Good evening again, Mr. Elliot. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well, Tim. How are you doing?
3: Doing well, sir. When I get up, and and no, I'm not going to give my zip code, but I'm not going to need to because I'm going to tell you pretty much where I'm at. If I get up and walk about 10 feet and open the blind and look out the window, I can see in the darkness the silhouette of Lookout Mountain across the road from me, and on top of that mountain is the state of Alabama. That's how close I am to that state. Okay. And as you know, uh, there is one Deep South U.S. Senator that is now a uh, member of the Democratic Party, and and that's Doug Jones. And and we all know the perfect storm that that brought him to the position he's in. That being right. said. Uh based on what you see isn't it highly likely that senator jones is going to lose next year i see no way especially with it being a presidential election that he could possibly uh you know pull enough votes together to win do you see any way that's possible
1: well the only possibility i say i see is two words and that's Roy Moore. Oh.
2: <laughs> okay. So, uh,
1: yeah, one of the more disappointing notes of this uh, lead up to this cycle was the fact that he has jumped into
2: the oh. uh, the
1: Alabama Senate race. Uh, this from a, you know, you know, I'm a Republican conservative. And so to hear that was not music to my ears, needless to say. Mm-hmm. If he does not win the nomination, then Doug Jones will almost certainly be a, a one-term senator
3: mm-hmm. now now scott that that being said you, you you've seen the list of big names uh you know like bradley Byrne and some others that have jumped into that race is there any way more can garner the nomination
1: I I think it's doubtful this time. I think uh, I don't think that Alabama Republicans will choose a loser two times in a row.
3: Uh-huh.
1: I, I at least I hope not. And and the the latest on that on that race is the possibility of Jeff Sessions jumping back in, which um, I believe that if he were to do that, then he would be the hands-on favorite to win the nomination and then pretty strongly win the general election.
3: Yeah. Well, that that that. Uh, begs another question, and I know it's all speculation but uh what what would the president do if if considering his- uh, history with uh, with jeff Sessions? <clears throat> what what would he do in that case do you think do you think he would offer support or
1: well the other way <laughs> <laughs> i tell you what i hope i i hope that for the most part trump will will stay out of the the primary battles that are going along are going around. Um, I think that if Sessions were to win the, the nomination, then I I do think that Trump would support him in the general election. I think Trump understands as most people do the importance of, of the party um, victories on both sides the blue and the red team, you know? And Mm -hmm. so I think that would be something that he would, he would come around to sessions and support him. I do think Mm -hmm. that.
3: And 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 while we're we're not talking about area codes, uh, I I, I want to mention another state here, uh, that being North Carolina. Hint hint. Um, <laughs> Tom Tillis has been a much talked about target for the Democrats, of course, in 2020. How vulnerable is he?
1: I think, he's, I think he's quite vulnerable, not uh, urgently so at this point. I think it could develop into that. I, I liken – so let me, let me back up a minute. So I see Alabama and Colorado as the most vulnerable Senate races for the incumbent parties, Democrats in Alabama, Republicans in Colorado. I see Arizona as also a very, very uh, sticky situation for Republicans. That they may very well — McSally may not be able to hold that seat. But the, the next tier well, and then there's Maine, Susan Collins, also, she, she's very much uh, vulnerable. But the next tier, sort of the almost critically vulnerable, would be the North Carolina on the Republican side and then Michigan on the Democratic side. Mm-hmm. I think that Tom Tillis, as an incumbent, has a, has a, a hill decline to, to he, he will certainly not breathe easy over this next twelve months, and I think that uh, John James, as a Republican in Michigan, brings a lot of star power with the potential to to make uh, the incumbent there, Gary Peters, sweat a little bit i don 't see those either one of them right now there 's no reason to say that either one of them will flip, but there are certainly potential flips along the way
3: mhm now now staying in North Carolina. I, I I've been thinking in looking at election maps, including your very excellent presidential election map for next year, that on election night in twenty twenty we may watch North Carolina be the closest state in the presidential contest in the entire South, am I? Is there a possibility I'm right about that?
1: In the South, yes. I think. In the entire
3: uh, South, yes.
1: Yeah, I think that's that could be the case. Uh, I think North Carolina has been trending, sort of very very slowly, but certainly trending a little toward toward the blue, you know, a little less red over the years. Mm-hmm. Uh, not as quickly as a state like Virginia has done, but still definitely moving in that direction. And, and when you're two points away, then moving closer makes it makes it razor close. So, yeah, I think that North Carolina is going to be a very, very competitive uh, state in the south. There's always Florida, of course, and Florida will uh-huh. continue to be very competitive. So they'll probably be battling for the title of the most competitive State in the South uh, in the presidential could, could North
3: Carolina be described as a bellwether where, where, if Donald Trump wins it, he's probably having a good night nationally, and if he loses it, th- the other scenarios happening then?
1: It, it could be, yes. I, obviously, we don't know yet how that's going to play out because the, there are changes from cycle to cycle in demographics, but I think that certainly if Trump does not carry North Carolina, then he's in deep trouble. I think we we can agree on that. Um, mm-hmm. If he does carry North Carolina, you 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 might say that he's having a good night, but I don't know that it's going to be as um, cut and dry as that. I think he he could have not such a good night and still Carolina and still carry North Carolina. But if he mm-hmm. if he loses North Carolina, then that it's definitely a bad night.
3: I have one final question, and this is a pretty wild one. When I was a little kid, I mean, I looked at a 43-year-old president. Not giving away my age, but you can figure out pretty quickly (laughs) what I'm talking about. And then, you know, 11 years ago, we elected a 47-year-old president. And now I look, and it is becoming more and more likely that we are now almost certain to have two 70-plus year olds as the nominees of both major parties, and you've been doing what you've been doing a pretty good while. What what, what can you tell me about this, Scott? Why why is this happening?
1: Um. Well, I've never really thought about that, Jim <laughs> but right off the top of my head, I would say it has a lot to do with people don't really care what the age of the of the candidates are they're they're more interested in other other factors, other aspects of the candidates, and age doesn't really matter uh, I think we're you know we could we could have a situation in four years from now where we're looking at a much younger slate of candidates or the same age that we're looking at now. I think that's just not something that people put a lot of uh importance in uh, right now.
3: Mhm. And and do you find that surprising because especially with with the millennials coming of age now to to you, you, we we're, we're talking about younger voters, but we're talking about candidates who are 40 and 50 years older than they are. I, I just don't see the connection. Do you?
1: I, I think you're bringing up a good point there, and that actually is something that I wanted to, to mention, to touch on, and that is uh-huh. I think one of the challenges, obviously one of the challenges Republicans have with Donald Trump is, is the brashness and the, and the the Twitter personality that, that doesn't uh, rise above fifth-grade level a lot of times. Um, but I think on the Democratic side, you have a sort of a, an aggregation of younger and ethnic group kind of, uh, of facets of our society that maybe the Democrats aren't very effectively reaching. reaching. I, and I bring up the point that in 2016 – if Hillary Clinton had received the kind of turnout among African Americans that Barack Obama did in, in both of his, his runs, then she would have beaten Clint, uh, Trump. She would have carried all of the, the blue wall states that Trump won, uh, and as well as probably Florida, probably North Carolina. So I think that if there's a challenge for the Democrats, it's actually connecting to those young millennials and to those ethnic groups that are – Sort of the backbone of that of of the Democratic Party support. hmm mm-hmm. And, and the,
3: the the very final question, and then I'll throw it back to David. and I'm sorry to everybody else to be so long, but you're you're an interesting guy, Scott. Just between me and you. So, thank you. It's a segue question. Uh, the the Democrats' challenge, you're correct, is 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 right there in front of us. Donald Trump's challenge, on the other hand, what can he do beyond his base, or does he feel that's enough?
1: Well, one of the things that I think he does have going for him, number one, is that he's a he's a known quantity, and he he was mm-hmm. he hasn't changed since he ran the first time. So Donald Trump is Donald Trump is Donald Trump. The second mm-hmm. thing is, I think that that. One of the, the knocks on his campaign in 2016 was the lack of ground game, the, the lack of structure. I heard comments, or I, I did hear comments uh, four years ago to the effect that it's not really a campaign. It's just a publicity stunt, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of that has sort of uh, improved quite a bit you know, under the, under the covers, behind the scenes. So I think that's a positive going forward for this election that he did not have necessarily four years ago.
0: Mhm. Okay.
3: And with that, I'm gonna throw it back to David. David.
1: Yes.
0: Um. Glad we got some time, Scott. I wanted to ask you on really about two races. The state of Arizona. Uh, on your electoral map, you have it colored. I guess it's a light, light shade of red, but it's almost the most neutral state on your map. And then in the Senate map, you still have Republicans holding it, even though Mark Kelly, um, former astronaut, is like this dream candidate that almost could run seemingly in any state, given his his uh, very interesting bio. Um, uh, what are your thoughts? You know, lay some uh, meat on the predictions of Arizona.
1: Okay, so I will – uh, preface my comments to say that these these are preliminary projections at this point, without any uh, poll poll numbers to back them, and I just don't feel motivated to produce a flip this early unless it's a clear advantage for the for the opposition party, such as in Colorado or or Alabama. Having said that, I think that Martha McSally is in for a tough race. There's no doubt about that. I did, I did read some commentary from, from Charlie Cook that uh, expressed the, the, the idea that she understood some of the weaknesses that contributed to her loss to Kirsten, Kirsten Sinema um, two years ago and, and has, has worked to correct those. So I'm not sure that she will be as, as poor a candidate again in 2020 as in 2018, but I do think that regardless – the democrats have a great candidate there and and she's she's going to have to really really bring her A game to survive so that that may be the the one of the most competitive races in in the country uh next year mm. but as far yeah. as the projection goes that, that that's a more preliminary uh feeling that isn't based on concrete polling data and since there was no clear-cut advantage for the uh, opposition, I left that as a, as a weak Republican hold there.
0: Yes, and, and then I noticed on your House map, of course, we've uh, Catherine already asked about the uh, seat currently held by Rob Woodall in Georgia. You had one flip uh, back to the Republicans for, um, in Michigan. I'm assuming that's the Justin Amash seat. That is. So that would be independent uh, to Republican, and then you had a flip to Democrats in Texas. Is that the Will Hurd seat, or is that a different seat?
1: That is the Will Hurd seat. He is the most vulnerable – well, that seat is the most vulnerable Republican seat right now. Uh, But Texas is an interesting story. I'm not used to having seven, eight seats in Texas on my list because typically um, Texas is not that competitive at the House district level. I think that's just another signal of Texas becoming more and more competitive. And I think as the Tino vote expands there, we're going to see Texas slowly moving toward toward battleground status. And as a Republican, that's a horrifying thought because it's the second largest trove of, of electoral votes. Um, but for you guys, it's probably a really nice thought. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Uh,
1: but yeah, so I think the beyond the 23rd, the, the 22nd and the 24th, are also open Republican seats that are that are just teetering on toss up status which uh will be will be difficult to defend. I think twenty uh C D twenty three is gone. I think that's gonna be a democratic victory, probably a substantial one once we get into the into the polling numbers.
0: Yes, I, I will admit I, I do love states turning blue and districts turning blue, but I will say this I wish the Republicans had more Will Hurds and less Louis Gomerts. Uh, Because I think Will Hurd is a very qualified, intelligent um, representative, and I think we'd be better served as Americans if more Republicans were cut out of the Will Hurd mold. So uh, the country may be worse for losing him in the House uh, on a more of a global thing, uh, more so than just that district. Um, Well, I did want to ask you about one other uh, state, and that was Florida. You kind of touched on it, and Florida's kind of, I guess, one of the most uh, schizo states, if you will, um, as far as the way they trend. It's not like a North Carolina Virginia where there was a clear pattern or some of the other southern states the other way, Uh, but Florida will flip back and forth. But um, a few things that uh, just didn't know if this goes into your prediction. Uh, Just in the past week, Donald Trump moved his residency to Florida, um, so will that help the Republicans? And on the other side, of course, um, people that have out of prison have paid their debts to, to society can now vote in Florida. Um, you know, when they're you know ex convicts, um, how much will that change the dynamics the other way?
1: Well, uh, to, to answer your first question about Trump moving there, I, I don't know that that will have any effect uh, on on the numbers. I would I would doubt it would have a significant effect as far as the the um, second issue of um, what's I guess what's the way to say it the ex cons is the way I would I'm saying yeah. it but I don't yeah. I don't know if that's former. the right way to say it uh, former yeah uh, th- voting that that uh, that may have a more significant impact depending on the numbers and I haven't done research on on what kind of pool that adds to the to the general. Voter pool that could be enough to, to tip the balance if it's, if it's in the tens of thousands and um, that actually come out and vote. On the other hand, I think, I think Florida is, like you say, it's schizophrenic. I think that's a good way to put it. Its indications were in 2016 that, that the, the Democrats and the, and the Latino vote was very, very strong. And it was a bit of a surprise to see. The Republicans able to counter that and, and actually carry the state. So I'm, I'm – I'm, uh, without being too optimistic on my side, I'm thinking if, if, you know, if Florida can't go for the Democrat in 2016 with that exceptional turnout among Latinos and, and, and other Democrats. I'm wondering if Florida may be a state that is beginning to turn a little bit to the Republicans. And time will tell if that's a if that's an accurate assessment. But I think that's certainly a possibility given the results in twenty
0: sixteen. Yeah, it's definitely a state to watch. Well speaking of what we're gonna be watching, we are going to um be watching your map and we see another big update when some state polling comes out um and some Senate race polling and we have some nominees. Um, Not projected nominees We want to get you back
1: on the show again Well I would love that I would love that All right. thank you sir Well I appreciate you guys having me on And it's been wonderful talking to y'all Thank you
2: Scott
1: Thank you
0: Yes and if you want to read the maps We've been discussing Electionprojection.com Is where you go And um, I remember we first had Scott on I believe he just had the electoral map He's added the um, uh, Senate, and he's even been brave enough to add the House, and with, uh, you know, 435 districts to project, uh, that gets pretty tough. And this is not, you know, somebody like Charlie Cook that has a full-time um, staff to, to work on this. Scott, I believe's a, a one-man show and has another job on the side. Um But let's kind of get back into our other discussion we were having about the presidential race, and we were talking about Kamala Harris. Uh, We didn't mention one more candidate that we heard news on this past week, and that was Julian Castro. A lot of the staff is looking to um, explore other opportunities, if you will. Um, He did have one of those, and I think Cory Booker said the same thing, where if I don't meet this uh, fundraising threshold, I'll have to drop out. And he met it. Um, but then I think he's still kind of borderline on some of those uh, November and December debates. Um, Catherine, your thoughts on you know, where does Julian Castro – and really we can almost know Cory Booker's campaign into this.
2: Well, I, I mean I, I think Julian Castro was a long shot to begin with. Um, I don't think he performed as well in the debates as everyone may have expected. He had a few moments, but I think his uh, his uh, was it. Did he go after Biden? Was it Biden? I don't know. Um, uh, and Beto yeah, or early Biden, on? Right?
0: Yeah. Well, he, well, he so went after so Beto, in the early debates. Right. I
2: think yeah. um he I I found that I struggled a little bit with him about what he what he actually was you know, why he was there, you know, what he thought his special contribution would be. And uh, his attack didn't help that. Um, As far as Cory Booker, you know, Cory Booker was on, um, you know, I watch The View every day. When I get home from work, I record it every day. And I usually would just watch the first few minutes. But Cory Booker was on this week. And I have to say that you know, I don't think he's going to be the president, but I really like him. Uh, he really went after Megan McCain about um, he, she called Beto crazy. And he said, you know, we need to be careful about how we talk about people. You might not agree with him, but he's not crazy. He's, you know, serving the country, you know, blah, blah, blah. It was really good. And, you know, he's sort of like the uh, peacemaker among them. And I think that voice has been really helpful and uh but i do think he's probably not going to hold on much longer uh i don't know if he's made it to the atlanta debate i haven't seen that list i don't know if he has but if he doesn't then i think he's going to have to figure out you know where he how long he can hold out but i do like his voice in the in the conversation
0: yeah, Tim, your thoughts on uh, both those candidates.
3: Well, um, Castro, let's see what happens now with O'Rourke, gone, because I believe that represents his final chance. I think one thing that, that he felt personally was, was hurting him a little bit was that he had another candidate in the race on the other side of, of the state of Texas. He needed to be the lone candidate from the state of Texas and any advantages that would bring with it. Let's see now if it does, but he is just tottering on the edge. Uh, Cory Booker, um, I'm with Catherine. I I, I really like him. Um, I, I could see myself supporting him wholeheartedly, as a matter of fact. Uh, as a matter of fact, my my wife tells me she's going to vote for him uh, <laughs> if, if he's on the ballot in Georgia. She she that's the man that's got her vote. Um, but uh, what Booker has, I think, been subtly trying to say, okay, if you don't like um, Joe Biden, I'm the guy that can fill that void. I can be the you know the establishment candidate or, or, or whatever term you would like to put to it, uh, uh, or I can be the moderate, the centrist candidate. And so far, it that hasn't taken. As a matter of fact, if Biden were to fall further, no one seems to have stepped forward to fill that void because there's others besides Booker who who have pretty subtly said the same thing, and they're all languishing in the low single digits with Senator Booker. Now, I don't know what that says, but that, there they are. But, uh, again, it's going to be a matter of economics with, with Cory Booker. If he has the money, I'm sure he'll stay in at least until the first votes are counted. But, you know... Money is the mother's milk of politics. It's called that for a reason. Booker did say, you know, the other day, I got to make eight hundred thousand dollars in donations by this date, and he did get that. And I do believe he has qualified for the for the next debate. That hasn't been the problem, guys. Money has been his problem, and you, you know, you can't run a campaign without it. So that that's where he stands.
0: Yes, and I think there's kind of an overarching problem. I think the race has been nationalized too much, and that's cost so much money uh, to be needed to be in the campaign. And I think that's winnowing the field. I mean, usually you wouldn't have 20-some-odd candidates get in, but even if we had, say, seven, some re- you know more no- traditional number – You still have candidates having the same problem, you know, funding this campaign where you have to um, seemingly run national all at once. Uh, I I know that, you know, it would be better if, you know, from our perspective, given the demographics of the party, if uh, the first state or two, one of them was more diverse. And I remember something back on Inside Politics years ago. Somebody looked at this back in, say, 96, maybe 2000, and they looked and they said, you know – if Maryland was one of the first states, it would really work well. It's a small mm-hmm. state geographically. It's what about a, a six electoral votes? So it's not really super big population. It's ten electoral votes now. Ten, so it's grown a little bit, but still it's it's still not, you know, massively huge like California. It has one media market, Baltimore for the most part. Um And one big city, it has diversity, it's one of the most diverse states outside the south. Um, It's a border state, so it has a little bit of that northern and southern feel, it has some rural areas um, in the western half of it. And I could think, if they could somehow say, look, we're going to bring this process back like it was, we're going to take a state like Maryland, put it early... um, and let's look at this thing because I think money has become such a factor that some of these candidates are getting out. Like we didn't talk too much about Tim Ryan, but they keep talking about like what's an alternative to Joe Biden? I think he's a much better alternative to Joe Biden than some of these other people I've heard mentioned as far as a safe candidate. Um, and so uh, – and he's already dropped out, um, and some of these other candidates, that you know they're not getting anywhere. And so I think if they were to do something like that, it would be better than this – Primary, seemingly all over the nation. Tim.
3: Okay. Well, both of you have worked in campaigns, so I'm going to ask you both this question: uh, in, in campaigns with multiple candidates, right now, depending on on who you talk to today, there's either 16 or 17 Democrats still in the race. What is the number that you guys hope to see actually on the ballot? The night they count the first votes in the Iowa caucuses, what is a good number of candidates to have?
0: I, I'm okay with more candidates are in. Yeah, I, I don't think it has a magic number. I think, and I, I think the the can, the field has to have some layers. And, and I, I think there, if we keep losing these candidates, um, we're not going to have all those layers, and people won't be able to pick from as many choices that they might want. So um what do you think? I don't want to see it winter it as win much.
3: What what do you think, Five. Catherine? Five, Five, huh? I was thinking six or seven would be good. So Catherine and I are of the opinion that that sort of number would probably be better. Why uh David again explain to me why you think a large number is better.
0: Well, because I think then you're gonna have some different voices and different things and kind, of, you know, some different choices there and, and I'd rather see this thing decided at least at some of the ballot boxes. I mean, obviously eighteen candidates don't need to be trudging on for, you know, months and months of this thing, but if if it was a double digit number in Iowa and maybe through to say South Carolina, I don't think it'd be the end of the world. Um mm. And I think there may be some duplication with some of the front runners in some ways, in some aspects. Um, and therefore, some of the other yeah. candidates, a lot of the younger candidates are dropping out. And that's one thing you hear that, you know, oh, the field's so old. I mean, that's kind of what you brought up with Scott Elliott. Well, it seems like uh, everybody that doesn't qualify for Social Security is the ones that are all getting out. Um, you you, you know, know, so you're losing that.
3: You, you, you know what? what? what I'm getting at here what bothers me about this though guys we we saw this in 2016 a large field of candidates on the other side of the aisle and we saw those votes split up so that one guy with about 30% of the vote kept winning and his name was Donald Trump now i'm not saying yeah. something like that could happen on our side but I've certainly it certainly has to give me pause after what I saw. Do you see what I'm saying, David?
0: Well, I mean, but I, I don't think that's who our frontrunner is. And I don't know who's analogous. I mean, if you talk of, about a very non traditional kind of candidate that comes outside the role of politics, maybe a Marianne Williamson. If you talk about somebody that seems to be in business for another country, some might say Tulsi Gabbard. But neither one of them are, are um getting any kind of momentum to where they look like much of a threat to win. Um but let's talk about one more thing. We've got like three, four minutes. So let's uh Nancy Pelosi, there's an article I sent y'all uh late in the week that said she's kind of concerned about just the way the campaign's going. Um Catherine, is she should she be justified in that or is um is that just extra worry for no reason?
2: Well, I don't think we can, you know, I mean, I think that's part of the advantage of having a large field is that you can look at, you know, what the priorities of the various candidates are, not just what their views are, but what they focus on, and um, decide if their priorities, not just their policies, but their priorities, the things that they think are most important, are match yours, and you know, support those who do um i i I mean i think you can you might be able to blame if if that's a concern it might be partly also the media (laughs) focusing on the things that divide us um both left and right and within the party um as the things that they focus on so you know the candidates need to learn how to spin that and talk about the things that are of value to them. We have some candidates that are very good at that and some that are not so good. So, um, I don't know. I, it's still early. So, I mean, I, I trust Nancy Pelosi's uh, strategic thinking. So, I'm not going to say she's wrong. But I do think it's just a, a um, function of this like size of the field also.
0: Yeah, Tim, I, I agree with Catherine on that. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is a very astute politician. That's how she got where she's gotten twice now. Um, your thoughts on that article?
3: Yeah, I'm going to deviate a little bit. I agree with the speaker to a point. I, I, I think it's okay, of course, to talk about these things, of, uh, uh, of about things like Medicare for all that sort of thing. Why not? But need to remember what we did last year we had a bunch of angry voters angry voters vote what were they angry about one thing Donald Trump I don't feel and I believe the speaker doesn't feel that we have been going after this guy enough in this presidential campaign so far we've We've had a civil debate about the issues on on stage at these debates and around the country, and that's fine. But I don't think that we should forget that the prime thing, the thing that motivates our voters more than anything is we do not like Donald Trump. And if any of you Democratic candidates are listening to me tonight, go after him. Go after this guy. We don't need to play Mr. Nice Guy either. He certainly didn't get the memo about playing Mr. Nice Guy. His first campaign commercial, he said he's not a nice guy. Let, go go get this guy. If we get angry, we can beat him. we got to get our voters to the polls. So that's where I'm at.
0: Yes, Tim, you kind of closed out with a topic we never got to, um but we probably will need to get to in a uh, week soon. But uh, thanks again to Scott Elliott for coming on. Until then, been the Cozy Vine. Good night, guys. Good
2: night,
1: y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force? Lucky Land Casino asking people, "What's
0: the weirdest
2: place you've gotten lucky?"
1: Lucky in line at the deli, I guess. Aha!
0: In my dentist's office.